Well, amen. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you thankful for our choir and orchestra and our worship team leading us today? So thankful for them. I'm grateful to God for uh, our worship pastor and his team, and they lead us in worship every week. And so uh, two services, you know, that's a lot on Sunday morning, especially a rainy Sunday morning. How many of you thank God for the rain when you pulled out of the driveway this morning? 22 years of pastoral ministry, I can go ahead and tell you, for a lot of those years, when it was pouring the rain on Sunday mornings, I was complaining to God, thinking, Lord, why on Sunday, of all days, when I want to see people give them to church, you know, because 12 drops of rain will keep 24 Baptists out of church, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I'm so thankful for God's mercy and His constant giving. He's always giving. And he gives us what we need, and we desperately needed the rain, and so thankful that God saw fit to give us what we need. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. If you have a Bible, I hope that you take it and turn with me to Romans chapter 1, where in just a moment, I want to read beginning with verse number 18. If you're new to our church this morning, we are in a series of studies through the book of Romans. In the last several weeks, we've been here in chapter 1 as we got started with our study the first Sunday in January. And so last week, I finished the introduction to the book. It just took me five weeks to do it. But we looked at the first 17 verses over the course of those weeks, and it's really Paul's extended introduction to the church at Rome. He's never visited the church at Rome. The church wasn't planted by Paul, but... He is making plans to visit the church at Rome, and so he is writing this letter of correspondence. Of course, it is an inspired letter. It's scripture in which Paul is explaining the message that he's going to preach once he comes to Rome. Now, he never gets to Rome the way that he wants to because he is going to be taken to Rome as a prisoner. But Romans represents the gospel that the Apostle Paul preaches. If you want to know the subject of what Paul preached, where he went, where he traveled, where he planted churches, then look no further than the book of Romans. And so really in verses 16 and 17, Paul has explained the theme that he writes with in the book of Romans because the rest of the book in many ways is an explanation of what he introduces in verses 16 and 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. He says, for within the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the gospel of God is the power of God. Now, one thing about first century Rome was that the Romans held power to be a virtue. Rome was proud of its military power, its economic power, its political power, its roads and system of travel were unparalleled in ancient times. Rome's leaders were powerful leaders, even deified and worshipped. That's going to lead the first century church to sort of come up against the powers that be in their own time because the Caesars demanded worship and the early church says there's only one Lord and Caesar is not him. And so they refused to worship Caesar as God and for that many of them were martyred for their faith and their allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so despite all of the power that was true of the Roman Empire, Paul knew that Rome was powerless and bankrupt when it came to changing the human heart. They still had the same old problems that you and I contend with in our own time. The same old problems that have been plaguing humanity ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And so that's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows that it is the power of God to salvation and only the gospel can do what man's wisdom cannot do because God gets to the heart of the issue, which is the human heart. And so when humanity refuses and rejects the true knowledge of God, relying upon our own wisdom, 
following the logic of our own sinful heart, the result of that, folks, is that your world will always be left in a mess, both in terms of an individual sense, your own individual life will be in a mess, and society around us will be left in a mess. And so that's really the subject that Paul picks up, uh, beginning with verse number 18. So if you've got your Bible there open, I want you to stand with me as we read the Scriptures together this morning. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse number 18. Notice that Paul begins there in verse 18 by saying, for the wrath of God. He said something about the gospel of God and the power of God. And verse 17, the righteousness of God. And now, verse 18, he shows us why all of that is necessary and essential. It's because he says that the world as it stands now, man's world having rejected God is under the wrath of God. So Paul is going to show us the need for this gospel. Before he explains it point by point, detail upon detail, he wants you and I to know the need for this gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so I'm going to stop reading there. But as you get into verse 24 through the end of the chapter, Paul mentions what the wrath of God looks like as it's working itself out in humanity that has rejected the knowledge of God. And so I want to preach from this subject this morning, why the world is in a mess. I thought about entitling my sermon this, why the world is a hot mess. <laughs> because all of us in the room would agree that the world around us is indeed in a mess. But the issue is, why are we in the mess that we're in? And what is the solution? What's the answer to the problem which plagues humanity? Well, Paul's going to give us the answer here in Romans. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, we're so thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the gospel. Lord, we need you to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to respond to the truth of your word. And God, I recognize that as a preacher this morning, I'm completely and totally dependent upon your spirit. If there's to be anything that's said of value, Lord, it will be your word preached in the power of your spirit. And so, Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond to your truth. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Tony Morita, I read where he told the story about a, um, a campus ministry that was somewhere over in the UK at a large university, and this campus ministry was desiring to reach students with the gospel. And so they printed out the words of Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, on, on a tract. Uh, in modern translation, however, they, they did not include the reference or the verse numbers, so that it was written as if it were composed in the 21st century. Well, it wasn't long after this tract was distributed among the student body that the leaders of this student ministry uh, were called before the leadership there and the authorities at the university. And these students were told in no uncertain terms that they were being reprimanded for their offensiveness. And they demanded the students produce the author of such an offensive piece of writing. 
And so you can imagine their surprise when they learned that it was none other than God speaking through the authoritative witness of the Apostle Paul. And what is written here is not merely Paul's opinion, but it is the truth of God which has been revealed from God himself. So that what we find in these verses really serve as the most in-depth treatment of the sinful condition of humanity that we find anywhere in the Bible. If you really desire to know why human society is the way that it is, if you want to know why the world is in the mess that it's in, then we really need to look no further than what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Because in these verses, Paul presents a grim picture of what happens when our world rejects God's revealed truth. So this is a classic treatment on what's known as the doctrine of depravity. Something that plays itself out in tragic ways, ugly ways, that you and I can both personally testify and we see it in the headlines every day, which only serve to illustrate my point. For example... Uh, you read the headlines or you listen to the news or you scroll through your news feed on any given day and you'll read about shootings and increased homicide rates in many of our major cities. Just this week, I read the headline of a 24-year-old man who shot a six-year-old girl, her parents and a neighbor simply because a basketball rolled into his yard. We frequently read about deranged gunmen entering our schools and maybe barricading themselves while unloading their magazine on as many children as they can. Smash and grab robberies that are organized on social media where masked thieves swarm retail stores and take as much as they can in a feeding frenzy. On any given day, we read of shameful and illicit activity and one scandal after another scandal by those who've been elected to the highest offices in our land. Or a teacher who's been entrusted with society's most precious possession, and that is the next generation, our children. A teacher arrested and charged with sex crimes and molestation. Armed militants associated with Hamas invading a quiet Israeli town, raping the women, murdering and pillaging at will, decapitating, taking pictures of the carnage, all while posting it on the internet. We frequently hear stories of abuse and child abandonment and abortion. Those who openly advocate for the genital mutilation of children, all in the name of transgender rights convincing ourselves that it's actually moral and decent to give children puberty blockers, hormone treatments, all in the name of these rights. Time won't even permit me to talk about kidnapping and sex trafficking, senseless acts of violence on subway systems and bus systems where seniors and those who are the most vulnerable have been targeted, fights among overpaid athletes on the field, drunk fans in the stands, domestic violence and the breakup of the home, drug and alcohol addiction, pornography addiction that enslaves millions, financial dishonesty, schemes to game the system, road rage on our highways. You see, the thing is, folks, you and I are so used to those kinds of stories that they don't even make us blush anymore. We we read those stories and we hear those news reports and we may say, man, the world's in a mess, and we yawn and then we go on about our day. But depravity, depravity is the issue. G.K. Chesterton, I think it was Chesterton who said that it's surprising that people have rejected the doctrine of original sin since it's the only doctrine that can be empirically verified. And someone asked me a while ago, what are you preaching this morning? I said, depravity, to which he said, you should have a lot of illustrations. And that's true both in terms of society, but it's also true both in terms of my own life. We know that the world is in a mess, but if we were all to be honest, we know that we too are in a mess, are we not? And it still amazes me that people will tell you from time to time that they believe that the world is becoming a better place. 
And there have been major strides in things such as technology, advancement, those kinds of things. But we're still dealing with the same old problems that humanity has been dealing with since the dawn of civilization. And it's the depravity of the human heart. Man in his wisdom and in all of his power and in all of his boasts cannot do anything to restrain his own heart. Now, what's meant by that term depravity? Well, the Christian doctrine of depravity is absolutely essential that you know and understand because you won't understand the gospel and why the gospel is so wonderful apart from an understanding of this issue of depravity. Now, no, here's what I mean by depravity. That does not mean that every person is as bad as they possibly can be. Depravity does not mean that every person walking around is an Adolf Hitler. But depravity does mean that every person has the potential of being an Adolf Hitler. Depravity means that sin has so affected us and corrupted us at our fundamental level that every part of the human faculties have been affected by sin. And this is what's meant by this issue of depravity. You might be able to sum it up with one verse from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. But the Bible says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's sort of the summary description that's given of the world in Noah's day. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way in the message. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning tonight. And don't forget that Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 37, concerning the last days, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he then provides a description of human society in the last days. And he says that lawlessness will be increased. And because of that, the love of many will grow cold. Paul describes this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5, where he says that in the last days, Timothy, you need to know that perilous times will come as depravity plays itself out, works itself out, both in individual lives and in human society. And so someone says, okay, well, pastor, I just genuinely believe in the general good of humanity. And you're telling me that man is depraved by nature? No, I'm not telling you that. That's what Scripture says. So that Christian theology understands the human condition to be so desperate that men are not basically good. They are basically evil. And wherever you do see good in the world and wherever you do see good even in people, it's evidence of the image of God in man because God is good and God has created us in his own image. And even the world around us. You see good, it's because of God's common grace to humanity. The Bible says that he causes it to rain on both the just and the unjust. So that God himself is the source of our goodness. Not me, not you, but God who's made us in his own image. Now listen, it's not until we come to grips with this issue of depravity that we will finally have a greater acceptance and appreciation of the gospel. And so a principle that I want to lay down from these verses is this principle. Without acknowledging the seriousness of the bad news, we can never appreciate the sweetness of the good news. And this is not a pleasant subject to talk about, this issue of depravity. It's not something that you'll hear pastors and pulpits give a whole lot of attention to in our time simply because it's just not in keeping with where our culture is. But folks, the gospel will never be good news to you until you first come to grips with the issue of your own depravity and your need for God and his grace and your need for Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection. So that's why Paul says it's essential you understand this right out of the gate, having said something about the gospel of God, which is the power of God and our need for the righteousness of God. Notice in verse 18, he says something about the wrath of God. And it's the first negative note in the letter, but it's a necessary one because it introduces this passage that tells us why we need the gospel. Because without this issue of depravity and you understanding that, then the gospel is not good news, it's just simply news. 
news that you can take or leave. But when you understand your own need for the gospel, then the gospel truly becomes good news that points you to God and his grace, God's son, the Lord Jesus. So why is the world in a mess? I want to give you three reasons this morning. And I didn't get two of them preached in the first service, so I doubt that I'll get all three of them preached in this service. But reason number one, why is the world in a mess? Well, because it's a world that's under wrath. That's what Paul wants us to know here in verse number 18 when he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that expression, uh, the wrath of God. Most people think of it in terms of this vengeful, unappeasable deity who's peeved with humanity and so vents his anger with thunderbolts and lightning. They think of wrath as being nothing more than just this angry outburst as if God has somehow uncontrollably lost his cool with humanity. You know, the Greeks had a word for that particular type of anger, and it was the Greek word thumos. The same word we get the word thermostat from. So that thumos describes just this this idea of hot displeasure in a moment where the temperature's turned up. An outburst of anger, an outburst of wrath, the rage of a moment. But you see, that's not the word that Paul uses here in verse 18 for wrath. No, the word that he uses here is the word orge, which is a word that describes this justifiable abhorrence of something. It's the disposition of God against all that is not in keeping with his character and his holiness. You might could think of it as the judicial disposition of the law against the lawbreaker. You ever heard the song, I fought the law and the law won? (laughs) It's not so much that you break the law as much as it is that the law will break you. That's the idea here. God's wrath is his disposition uh, toward all of that which is not in keeping with his character. It's his perfect anger. His righteous indignation against sin. It's not an emotional outburst. It's not a temper tantrum. No, if God loves all that is right and all that is good and just and all that conforms to his moral character, then it really shouldn't be surprising at all that he would also hate that which is opposed to his moral character. Which, by the way, if God didn't hate with a holy, perfect hatred, that which is not in keeping with his holy character, then he wouldn't be a loving God. Because he hates that which destroys and kills his creation. So two things to consider here about this wrath that Paul is describing. First, notice with me the revelation of God's wrath. Paul says that God's wrath is revealed. The verb tense of the Greek word there, it's a present tense verb, which means you can translate this. uh, The wrath of God is being revealed continuously. It's a present reality. You say, well, how is God's wrath being continuously revealed to sinful humanity? Well, I think a number of ways are involved here. I think that God's wrath is constantly revealed in his word, and his word stands as a constant witness against the sin of our world. The psalmist says in um, Psalm 7, verse number 11, God is a righteous judge and he's angry with the wicked every day. That is his settled disposition towards sin. John three thirty six: he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul commends the church at Thessalonica, how they turned to God from their idols to serve the living and true God while waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. Paul goes on and tells the church that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that God has to meet sin 
in the fierceness of his wrath, that's his disposition toward our sin. It's not that he simply turns a blind eye to sin. It's not that he sort of closes his eyes and looks away from our sin and gives us a free pass. He always has to meet sin in the fierceness of his wrath, which leads me to a second way that his wrath is constantly being revealed because the cross of Jesus stands as a perpetual witness to the world of the seriousness with which God takes human sin. When you look at the cross and you think, well, the cross, this is the sign of God's love for me as a sinner. While that's true, it's also true that the cross is a picture of God's wrath upon sin. How serious an issue is your sin? Listen to me. It's so serious that God's son had to die in your place so that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God poured out his wrath upon his own son there at the cross so that I could be forgiven of my sin, and so that by faith I could receive the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the thing is, we don't think sin is a big deal. Uh, We we talk about sin now, and we apply it to a dessert menu in the restaurant. We don't like to use the word, I sinned. No, we like to say, I made a mistake, because it doesn't sound as bad when you say you made a mistake. But in reality is, All of us are sinners by nature and we're sinners by practice. And what is God's disposition towards sin? He has to meet it in the fierceness of his wrath. But the gospel's good news because in Jesus Christ, there's a way of escape. Jesus becomes your substitute through his death on the cross and he drinks the cup of God's wrath so that you can be forgiven and have life. And so the revelation then of God's wrath, what about the reason for God's wrath? Why is the wrath of God revealed against man's unbelief and sin? Well, look at verse 18. Paul says it's revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. In two simple words, he sums up the entire problem of humanity's sin. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness... This is sin against the being of God. Unrighteousness, this is sin against the will of God. Alvin McLean says it this way, man is not only a moral sinner in that he's unrighteous, but he's a religious sinner. He's ungodly. The righteous man lives as if, or the unrighteous man lives as if there were no will of God that's been revealed. The ungodly man lives as if there were no God. So you think of unrighteousness and ungodliness, in many ways, unrighteousness flows out of ungodliness. While unrighteousness has to do with morality, that is our relationship with others, ungodliness has to do with truth and our relationship toward God himself. Tim Keller put it this way, he said that ungodliness, that's referred to there in verse 18, it speaks of a disregard of God's rights where there's a destruction of our vertical relationship with him. The second term refers to a disregard of human responsibility, having been made in the image of God. Because God is love, we're to be loving. Because God is true, we're to be truthful. Because God is just, we're to be just in our dealings with others. But because there's unrighteousness now, there's this destruction in the horizontal relationships with those around us. So that the reason that there are fights and Wars and abuse and all of this host of issues that man deals with, the the, the injustices and the carnage and the chaos in man's world among men and women, it's because there's a destruction of the vertical relationship with God first. And that plays itself out in the horizontal relationships that we have with each other. Which is why Jesus says that the two greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God first and foremost. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But you see, that's fundamentally what's wrong in the world today. We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And therein lies the explanation for so much of the chaos and the division of our times even the corruption in your own heart and in your own life. And so someone might protest here at this point and say, okay, well, pastor, people just don't know any better. 
to which Paul would say, slow your roll. (laughs) Hold up one second because look at how it plays out in humanity. Verse 18 says that men take the truth and by their unrighteousness they suppress it. The word suppress means to hold down, to restrain. Uh, it's, it's Our English word suppress means to forcibly prevent something. A good illustration I thought of, maybe you've, you've played with your kids in the pool, you know, on vacation, at summer, whatever. But have you ever tried to hold down like a basketball or a beach ball or some inflatable ball in the deep end of the pool? So that the deeper you go with that beach ball, the harder it is to keep under the water because of the pressure. It just bobs right on up no matter what you do. That's the idea. That's what humanity does with the truth. We want to suppress it while at the same time claiming that it can't be known. So what is it that humanity suppresses? It's not childhood memories. It's not painful memories that we don't want to think about anymore. No, he says humanity suppresses the truth. And don't miss what he says in verse 19. He says, because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So that humanity, in our fallen condition, we suppress the plain truth about God that he's revealed. That's what sinful, fallen human nature does. Jesus said the reason for that, John 3, 19, is that men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And so that's the wrath of God which is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And men have taken the truth of God and we've suppressed it in our unrighteousness. And that leads me to a second reason that the world is in a mess. Reason number two, it's a world that has rejected knowledge. That is, the knowledge, the truth of God that he himself has revealed to humanity made in his image. What have we done with that? Well, we've suppressed it. We've rejected it. Look at verse 20. Paul says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That is, you can know something about this transcendent God just by simple observation from the world around you. This goes all the way back to the creation of the world, Paul says, in the things that have been made so that humanity is without excuse. You go back up to verse 19, maybe your translation says it this way, what can be known about God is manifest in them. The ESV translates it, it's plain to them. The idea here is that God has revealed something as far as humanity is concerned, both in them and to them. So that there is this knowledge of God which is available around us and even within us. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But first of all, let's consider this knowledge of God which is evident by What Paul says is the world around us, what God has revealed to us, this is the knowledge from creation which is external. Creation, the physical world around us, declares to us the reality, the power, and the glory of God. His invisible attributes. That is, there's something that you can come to know about the invisible God above us by simple observation of the visible world around us. If you have creation, then you must also have a creator. And the existence of the creator, this is clearly seen in the things which are made. If I were to use an illustration, you think about this finely tuned piano here on the platform just to my right behind me. You can know that there is someone who crafted it and tuned it. Now, we've all enjoyed the beautiful music that Miss Pam here plays on that piano. But you know, there's probably not a single one of us who came in here today and looked at that piano on the platform and probably thought, hmm, I wonder how that thing got there. How is it able to play the music that it plays? Well, I just believe that over millions and millions of years, it must have just somehow come together and crawled up there on the platform and then developed these musical properties that someone then could come sit down at that piano bench and play a beautiful piece of music from. You know, in in Hebrew, there's a word to describe that kind of idea. Stupidity. (laughs) That's the word. Insanity. 
No, you know that there is someone behind that who designed it to function as so. And so Paul is saying the same thing here concerning the order of creation, which points to the Creator. This is evidence, plain evidence, that stares mankind in the face every day. We look around at the order which is apparent in the cosmos. We observe the laws which govern the natural order of things in our world from the visible realities that we interact with on a daily basis. We're able to know something about the invisible and the spiritual realities which are true of the God who made us in His image. Even that word cosmos comes from the word cosmos, which means orderly, ordered. The opposite of this in Greek would be chaos. So that when you take a telescope and you train it on a a, a planet in the night sky, you're not looking into the chaos, you're looking into the cosmos. It's ordered. And those planets have been placed at just the right orbit with precision-like detail. And it's more accurate than the timepiece that you have on your wrist. And you mean to tell me that that just happened by accident? No, the psalmist says in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day unto day pour forth speech. There's speech for humanity. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There's knowledge for humanity. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth. This is the knowledge that Paul is referring to here from the visible creation. When you consider this vast presence above us and around us, you think about the stars and their mind-boggling brilliance. All of that's intended to be a signpost that points you to the God who made you in His image. And I could give you illustration after illustration of the material universe. We could marvel at that and it would lead us to worship God. You think about 100 billion stars in our own galaxy, which is simply one galaxy among 100 billion galaxies, possibly more. Does that not boggle your mind? I had an illustration I've got in my pocket. Ten pennies. Now this week I took these ten pennies and I took a Sharpie marker and I numbered them one through ten. Now, what do you think the mathematical probabilities are that I reach into my pocket and I pull out penny number one, put it back in my pocket, pull out penny number two, put that back in my pocket, pull out penny number three, and I go all the way to penny number ten. Let's just start. I've got a one in ten chance to begin with of finding penny number one in my pocket. Are you ready? What do you know? Penny number one. (laughs) Nina, where you at? Let's book a trip to Vegas, can we? (laughs) No, I just. I put that back in my pocket. I shake up those pennies. What are the chances that I pull up penny number two? Those of you math teachers and students in the room, you know you've got to multiply your odds by 10. So I've got a one in what? 100 chance at that point of pulling out penny number two. Say I do, and I put it back in my pocket. I shake up penny, I shake the pennies, I shake them again. What's the odds? I pull penny number three. I've got a one in 1,000 chance of pulling out penny number one, followed by penny number two, followed by penny number three. And if I were to go all the way Penny number 10, let's say I pulled out penny number one, penny number two, penny number three, all the way to nine. What's the odd that I pull up penny number 10 in that order? One in 10 billion. Those are the odds. And we're just talking about pennies in my pocket, men and women. Pennies in my pocket. And yet you're to tell me that the world and the atmosphere around us, and the earth that's tilted at, what, 23 and a half degrees on its axis, the planets in our solar system orbiting with precision, and all of this, all of this just in our solar system, within our Milky Way galaxy, within the billions of galaxies, this just just happened. 
Why would someone believe that? I'll tell you why. Because they suppress the truth that's plain to them in their unrighteousness because, because, it's not due to intellectual reasons. It's due to moral reasons. Because truth means accountability. Because if there is this God who's created everything that's visible, and He's omnipotent, then that means that I am not at the center of the universe. If there is a God who's created all of this, that means He is on the throne and I am not. And you see, that's a truth that man in his lost condition, he, he bristles at because he wants to call the shots. He wants to be Lord of his own life. He wants to determine what's true sexual morality and what's not. He wants to be the one who determines what's right and what's wrong. Because the human heart, the Bible says it's twisted. Jeremiah says that it's, it's, it's desperately wicked and sick. Who can know it? The power of the Roman Empire could not change it. But there is a power far greater than any power that man knows. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. If that's not good enough for you, listen to me. I could tell you another illustration. We could travel at 186,000 miles per second. Let's say we could travel at the speed of light. If it were possible to do so, we could be at the moon in just a little over one second. That's not much more than the blink of an eye when you think about it. If we were to keep on traveling at a straight shot, 186,000 miles per second, it would take us roughly eight minutes to make it to the sun. Now, you better pack your sunscreen and your, you know, your, your shorts because it's hot once we get there. The surface of the sun is more than 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If we were to keep on traveling at 186,000 miles per second, we could be at the planet Jupiter in 30 minutes. We could make it to Saturn in a little more than an hour. But you'll need to pack your coat and your long johns if we're going to Saturn because its temperature is 300 degrees below zero on the surface. If we were to continue at that same speed, 186,000 miles per second. Do you know how long it would take for us to get to the closest star in our own galaxy? Four years. And that's just the closest star in our galaxy, which is made up of billions of stars. And our galaxy is one of billions of galaxies. And yet, God has so placed his fingerprints on the physical world around us and the universe to where the knowledge of his power, his invisible attributes, it's plainly revealed. It's there. His fingerprints are there. The external evidence from creation, though, that's not all that God's revealed. What about the knowledge from conscience, which is internal? You go back up to verse 18, Paul says that the knowledge of God, it's manifest in them or plain to them. Which means that God, God's not just left his fingerprints on the world and the universe around us, but there is this inward witness within you as a man or a woman who's been made in the image of God. God has left his fingerprint there in terms of your own conscience. You've been made in the image of God. And Paul's going to say more about this in chapter 2 when he talks about Gentiles who don't even have the law, but by nature they do what the law requires. He says that they show that the work of the law is written upon their heart. Their conscience bears witness. So that within humanity, made in the image of God, there is this built-in knowledge of God's existence. That's why St. Augustine said that the soul of man is restless until it finds its rest in God. God made you for himself. God made you to know him, to serve him, to worship him. And until you do, you're going to be like a square peg trying to fit in a round hole. And the fact of the matter is, this God who's created all of this, he loves you. Mankind is really the pinnacle of his creation, the crowning point of creation. God wants, desperately wants a relationship with you, but here's where sin has left humanity. We're more passionate. About 22 men on a field throwing around a dead pig carcass on primetime television than we are coming to grips with the knowledge of this infinitely wise God who's made us in his image. 
why C.S. Lewis said that, you know, in many ways, we're half-hearted creatures. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. But we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't even imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're too easily pleased. We're blinded. We suppress the truth. That leads me to the third point, and I won't even get to it, but we're a world that worships idols. Why is the world in a mess? Because we're under wrath. It's a world that's rejected knowledge. And in the place of God, we worship our idols. And Paul will have much more to say about that beginning in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Now I'm done. I won't say another thing as far as sermon notes are concerned. But I want to ask you this question. The light of God's truth, which has been plainly revealed in terms of creation and conscience. I would imagine there's probably no one in this room who would deny the existence of God. If you're someone who denies the existence of God, the reason that you perhaps have come to church this morning is because someone's invited you and you know that you're empty within. But the fact of the matter is, when people make that claim that there is no God, they don't reject the knowledge of God on the basis of intellectual argument. It's not their intellect. Because the fact of the matter is, what Paul says in this passage of Scripture, he's saying the evidence of God's knowledge is plain to, to humanity in terms of the world around us and even our own conscience within us. So for someone to deny the existence of God, they have to reject the light of creation and they have to reject the light of even their own conscience. They have to suppress it, deny it. And you do that, here's what happens. Your conscience becomes seared. And God will give you over to the logical consequences of your sinful choices. And that's what Paul explains in the remainder of Romans chapter 1. So the point is, all of humanity has some light. But the light of general revelation, natural revelation, this is not enough to lead to salvation. What we need is the light of the gospel. What we need is the revelation of special revelation. What we need is God to come among, and didn't he come and make himself known? In the beginning was the word, the Word was with God. The Word was God. But Paul wants you to know, or John in that passage wants you to know that the Word was made flesh and He dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And you can know God through a personal relationship with Jesus. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? The thing is, we're accountable before a holy God. We're accountable. And all humanity has some light, not all the light. And I think about the vast untold millions of humanity that don't have what you have right now in your hand, a copy of God's Word. Millions who haven't heard the name of Jesus and so what Paul writes here really should produce within my heart and your heart a sense of urgency to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to share the gospel with our neighbors. Your children need the gospel. And yes, this news of man's depravity, that may be difficult to come to grips with, but until you come to grips with your own depravity, your need for the gospel, the gospel will never be good news. It'll only be news. And you can take it or leave it. And you can convince yourself by suppressing the truth that you're a decent person. I'm decent. There are more good things going in my life than bad things. And so on that criteria, God's going to let me into heaven. Well, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. How many sins does a person have to commit to qualify to be a sinner? You can fall short of that glorious standard of God's perfection by just a fraction, but it's still coming short of God's glorious perfection. I'm here to tell you, we have fallen short of God's glory, not just some minor infraction, but you talk about the 93 million miles, the distance between planet Earth and the sun. 
We've fallen short of God's glorious standard much further than that. I know that in my own heart. And you know that. But here's the good news of the gospel. God gave His only Son. That if you would repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for your sin, who endured the wrath of God in your place as your substitute, then, my friend, you can be saved. And you can receive the righteousness of God as a gift. And that is the offer of the gospel. Would you bow with me? I want to ask our pastors, guys, if you would come. Blythe, come stand a little bit closer right here. Mark, you come stand a little bit closer where people can see you. Listen, if God's dealing with your heart today, and you know you need to be saved, don't suppress this truth and don't make an excuse and don't say, well, I'll just wait till next week. I'm not ready yet. No, listen, what if this is the last opportunity that you have to respond to this gracious invitation to come to Christ? Come to Jesus. Place your faith and trust in Him and be saved. Do you sense the urgency of the hour? You come and you pray with one of these pastors. Me, I'll be right here. Even after the service, we'll pray with you. and tell you how you can be saved. Oh God, I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm thankful that I have good news to preach. But Lord, for us to fully come to grips with just how wonderful this news is, we've also got to come to grips with our need for it. And that's depravity. And it's an uncomfortable truth. It's one that the world around us wants to reject. It's one that we resist even in our own sinful hearts, Lord. But God, we've got to get honest before God. We've got to be humble before God because the gospel says that the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But the one who exalts himself will one day be humbled. So Lord, my prayer is that you take the truth of your word and Lord, may it produce life in the hearts of the hearers this morning. There's a person that needs to be saved. God, my prayer is that they don't suppress this truth. That they don't run, but that they run to Christ if they're going to run. <laughs> so, we're thankful for your patience. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.